Good morning, this is Dr. Daniel J. Guerra, and this is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is the 7th of June, 2023. I want to summarize the sphingosine phosphate receptor interaction, and then I want to move on to get into the thermodynamic discussion, which is going to be the final um, primary biochemical sequion of lectures before I finish immunoepigenetics. And yes, I've got my camera, so I'm going to be doing a video. I promise a video lecture before the weekend. Today's Wednesday, so um, I will let you know when that's going to happen. Let's finish off this um, discussion of uh, the sphingosine one phosphate because it's very significant to look at the polarity of the um, interaction between that one lipid compound and it, the, its multiple receptors. Okay, so that's the really key feature here. And as soon as I pull it up here, we will be on it. All right, here we go. Now, I want to go. Yeah, here we go. When sphingosine 1-phosphate binds to receptor number 1, what happens to protein expression? First of all, the adhesion molecules VCAM1 and ICAM1 drop. That results in a decrease in monocyte recruitment, which, of course, at least at the level of cellular phenomena, is associated with a decrease in inflammation. <clears throat> when sphingosine 1-phosphate binds to isoform 2 receptor, you get a direct increase, as we mentioned just yesterday, lecture two, in the expression of cyclooxygenase, isoform two. That increases prostacyclin, known as PGI2. Prostacyclin will inhibit or decrease inflammation via that change of polarity for the macrophages or for the microglia, because in the central nervous system, particularly in the brain. When sphingosine 1-phosphate binds to receptor 3, that also increases cyclooxygenase 2 transcription and then the subsequent translation activation. But in that instance, because of the, the product-substrate relationship of the initial cyclooxygenase reaction, because there are multiple hydroperoxy intermediates to generate all the prostaglandins. So there's a cyclooxygenase activity, and then there are multiple prostaglandin synthases. In this case, when sphingosine-1-phosphate binds to receptor number three, and you get cyclooxygenase 2 expression increase, you get an increase in prostaglandin E2. Remember, that's a pro-inflammatory eicosanoid. And so you get an increase in inflammation. That's directly linked to this aortic disruption. Okay, so that was what that paper we were talking about yesterday was all about. Remember that. So that aneurysm, that, that abdominal aortic aneurysm that we talked about, that's what's linked to that expression. So it's not the sphingosine 1 phosphate level. It's not even the reestep between that and ceramide. 
It's the unique binding to that receptor that is the sphingosine 1-phosphate receptor isoform 3 that is linked to Cox expression, linked to PG2 express, uh, increase, inflammation, and then that abdominal aortic aneurysm. What about ceramides? Ceramides bind to the receptor, and it, there's multiple receptors and there's multiple types of ceramides. So this is more of a conceptual generalization now, not like it was with the sphingosine 1-phosphate. But typically ceramides will increase pro-inflammatory cytokines, tumor necrosis factor alpha, interleukin-1 and 1-beta, and interleukin-6. That will cause a recruitment of T lymphocytes via the CD3 surface cell marker. That, that increase in T lymphocyte activation of CD3 will activate T cell receptor in association with antigen presentation, and that will increase inflammation directly. That also will result in abdominal aortic aneurysm. So aortic abdominal aneurysm occurs because of the macrophage polarity and starting off uh, in adipose and then migrating that um, to the smooth muscle cells, to the vascular system. And then once that occurs, T lymphocytes can be activated because of ceramide buildup and ceramide will lead to inflammation and also development of that aneurysm. Okay, so now you've got the whole story. Not going to talk to you about leptin yet. I, we were we were involved in leptin a while back, and um, I was going to I was going to give you like I don't know twenty more minutes, probably a full thirty minute lecture on leptin. I want to move on because I want to get into thermodynamics because we didn't get to it yesterday. Now I want you to think about the first law of thermodynamics. It states that energy within a system has to be conserved, and that any change must necessarily result from either a change in the energy input to or output from that system. Now, take the first law of thermodynamics and put it into a living system, put it into a human. So where in humans, energy is stored primarily as triacylglycerol. Remember, that's nine kilocalories per mole, right? And it's stored where? In the adipose tissue. So any major change in adipose mass must necessarily be a result of changes in energy input. That would be food intake. or energy expenditure, such as in exercise. So for body mass to remain stable, not change much, in a living human, energy input must be balanced between that dietary input of kilocalories and the energy output. And that has to occur over an extended period of time. So when food is readily available, as it is in the 21st century. Adult humans will maintain still 
a remarkably stable body mass while consuming approximately this is a this is basically you know a, a rough estimate one million kilocalories per year now what that suggests is that there is a mechanism whereby food intake is associated with neuroendocrine control control over energy expenditure such that there is a maintenance of the stability of body mass vis-a-vis adipose tissue so maintaining that stability of energy storage and energy utilization relative to depot fat relative to adipose obviously is essential for long-term stable health that's because if you have a decrease a massive decrease in body adipose that's going to have a direct association with the risk of having essentials in the diet becoming limiting and sometimes not just the essentials but even total kilocalories so where there is the potential for famine or starvation so when you have a heterotrophic system like a human adapted to having high caloric content readily available food what happens is the reverse of this concern over loss of essentiality or total kilocalories in the diet what you have then is an overabundance and the body mass index is a reflection of that relative to the total amount of depot fat so the nutritional state of a, of a human is really linked directly to adipose signaling and that was why we were talking a little bit about leptin and the other adipokines okay. so you have a metabolic homeostasis that links adipose mass to total body mass and this whole discussion we've had the last five or six lectures has been examining the physiological and pathophysiological implications of a lean body mass versus as an, an obese body mass hence i think it should be really clear to lay people and also to nutritionists and to scientists molecular biologists medical doctors any other person that might be interested in knowing the truth about what is occurring in the obese epidemic we have worldwide is all of the diseases that we see that seem to be a focus of the obesogenic state could be avoided if the balance between energy intake and energy expenditure was reformulated and maintained this is the issue that is most significant so all the drugs that are used that are prescribed following a pathophysiological sec sequence of events that occurred post obesity
are not going to be able to redirect that body mass equilibrium until the body mass is maintained at a level close to intake expenditure. It doesn't mean that all body mass index is a direct measurement that the numerical value is going to be the same for all people. It's not the case. Just like when it used to be just weight gain. Not the case. But there is a balance that each individual must find where obesity is no longer a factor. If you if that is not able to be achieved, then the diseases, particularly cardiovascular disease and cancer, the two leading causes of death and all the different pathophysiological implications of that, right? They're not going to be ameliorated by using individual pharmaceuticals that are going to target any number of the metabolites, enzymatic pathways, and control over gene expression, control over epigenetic modification of gene expression. None of that is going to be as functional as maintaining a body mass where the achievement is the reduction and then finally the elimination of obesity in each individual. Because each individual is, is who is going to go through that multiple level of pathophysiology, especially chronically as they age. Because their ability to lose body mass will decrease because of sarcopenia leading to a lack of good muscle regeneration. So that the activity component diminishes over time as one ages. At the same time, food intake either stays the same or increases. And this is why there is an obesity epidemic. It has to do with, again, the ultimate aspect of this, other than all the biochemistry and all the physiology and all the molecular genetics and epigenetics, is exercising discernment and making the judgment with free will to Stop consuming high caloric density food at the level where your intake is higher than the output, the work output. Now, that's, a, that's just a thermodynamic consideration, but those thermodynamic considerations are not, they're not, they're not laws in the sense that every single element in nature must abide by them because we don't abide by them. When, when those physical laws are rejected, what eventually occurs in a living system is a movement towards pathophysiology, if you want to call it disease. And that disease linked to this simple aspect of body mass index, or if you want to look at it better than that, Nutritional caloric intake versus caloric expenditure, then all these disease states are never going to um, diminish significantly in the population. And within the individual that is suffering from obesity, it's only going to get worse as they age. Okay.
So I say that as a biochemist and also it, it, it just it is the common sense of understanding this whole aspect of discernment okay so it's not it's not a uh, a component of a biochemic biochemist uh, um, repertoire to say these things in a biochemistry class uh, situation without realizing that what many people want to hear in a biochemistry class, if they're there to learn something about health and disease, is that, oh, well, there's going to be some kind of super sophisticated discovery. And we as scientists will eventually publish enough papers that it gets the attention of the medical community <laughs> and that they understand what research science is doing and with pharmaceutical companies and with nutritional um, matrices within a, a society, all of this can be corrected. No, it comes down to the individual discernment. Now we can describe, and this is what I'm going to do now, thermodynamics. And I'm going to do that because most people who are, have biology backgrounds, this includes medical doctors, as well as uh, you know veterinarians, anyone that's in the medical practice, most of them don't have a good chemical chemistry background or physics background because those requirements to get into graduate classes and then into medical schools, et cetera, have been decreasing and decreasing over time at all universities nationwide, worldwide, for reasons that are still absolutely inexplicable to me. So let's talk about chemical forces and the relative strength and distances of those forces. Okay. Let me check my time. I realize I spent a fair amount. Yeah. Okay. We've got plenty of time. I just have to watch where I'm at. Okay. I'm going to tell you about four different kinds of chemical forces. Some of them have to do with bonding, chemical bonding, and some of them are more like at the level of an interaction. So let's first talk about hydrophobic interactions. The strength of a hydrophobic interaction is actually a greater than 40 kilojoule per mole. Very, very, very strong. Hydrophobic interactions don't necessarily have a radial component. That is, we don't really talk about hydrophobic interactions having like a distance ratio like we do with ionic bonds or hydrogen bonds or covalent bonds or even van der Waal interactions. That's because hydrophobic interactions are complex and they're determined. When I say complex, that means there's more than one component. Okay. And that phenomena of hydrophobic interaction is determined by the degree to which the structure, the molecular structure of H2O is disordered as a discrete hydrophobic molecular interaction occurs. So you have hydrophobicity and hydrophilicity. You have lipids, and then you have aqueous soluble biological uh, molecules. The true aspect of hydrophobic interactions is the degree to which the structure of water maintains a quasi 
disordered state to allow for discrete hydrophobic interactions to maintain the solubility of what is aqueous to the solubility of what is not aqueous in a living system. Now compare that to hydrogen bonds. Hydrogen bonds have a strength between uh, 12 and 30 kilojoule per mole. I told you hydrophobic are greater than 40, so you can see they're stronger. Right? Now they have a very specific radial distance, 0.3 nanometer. So the relative strength of the hydrogen bond is proportional to the polarity of the hydrogen bond donor and acceptor. Therefore, more polar atoms form stronger hydrogen bonds. Okay. Compare that to ionic bonds. Their strength is set right at around 20 kilojoule per mole. The distance there is very similar to a hydrogen bond, about 0.25 nanometer. That strength depends on the relative polarity as well of the interacted, interacting, excuse me, charged species. So in that in that subclass, some of those ionic interactions are also hydrogen bonds. Okay. So there's a lot more to talk about ionic interactions, and we haven't even gotten to covalent yet. But you understand now that these interactions between molecules play a significant role on the thermodynamics of what's going on within one cell. And then that same cell with millions and millions of other cells of like gene expression patterns within a tissue make up that tissue, which make up that organ, which make up that function. So at the foundation of the regulation of biochemical activity are chemical forces and the relative strengths and distances I'm starting to describe to you. So finally, let's talk about van der Waal interactions. Strength of those is pretty small. It's between 0.4 and 4 kilojoule per mole. The distance is also similar to what we talked with hydrogen bonds and ionic interactions, about 0.3 to 0.6 nanometer. Now, here is something interesting. The strength of the van der Waal interaction depends on the relative size of the atoms or if it's a molecular interaction, the size and the distance between them. So the size component is interesting because it then relates to the mathematical consideration of area of contact between the two molecules. Now that you know that in a cell, molecular interactions that have to do with the bombardment of one molecule against another is going to have a great deal to do with substrate product interactions, enzymatic turnover, gene expression, mobilization of lipids and proteins and carbohydrates and nucleic acids uh, within one organelle and another. This is a very important consideration because ultimately the van der Waals interactions are telling us that the greater the area, the stronger the interaction. And if you're talking about surface area, that means the smaller the substance, the stronger the interaction. Because inverse relationship there, right? Okay, now that just 
just talking about chemical forces. Now, van der Waals forces, it's, it's named after van der Waal. It's, it's a generalized term. And what it's, what it's attempting to do is define a very important physical chemical interaction. It's trying, it's attempting at least to define the attraction of intermolecular forces, which means between any two molecules or more. And actually, we can say that van der Waals forces have two distinct components. One is called the weak London dispersion force, and the other, of course, is the stronger dipole-dipole interaction. So let's break those down. I have to, again, result in looking at my time. Oh, i got five minutes. Okay, we can do this easily. All right, here we go. The chance that an electron of an atom is in a certain area in that electron cloud at a specific time is called the electron charge density. Now, you probably remember from physics, there's no way of really accurately knowing exactly where the electron is located. And since they do not, all the electrons, that is, do not stay in the same area all of the time, if the electrons all go to the same area at one time, a dipole can be formed at that moment. That's called the dipole moment. Now, even if a molecule is nonpolar, the displacement of all the electron, the electron cloud, will cause a nonpolar molecule to temporarily take on a polar chemical moment. Now, since the molecule is polar, when you have a polar molecule, when you have that system, this means that all the electrons are concentrated at one end and the molecule is partially negatively charged on that end, right? And the negative end makes the surrounding molecules have an instantaneous dipole as well. So you have attracting of the surrounding molecules cationic positive chemical component. That process is known as the London dispersion force of attraction. So the ability of a molecule to become polar and displace its electrons is known as that molecule's polarizability, right? And the more electrons a molecule uh, uh, obtains, the higher its ability to become polarized. Okay? So these are all basic thermodynamic considerations. Why am I talking about them? Uh, leaping off of all of that clinical examination of obesity, looking at epigenetic modification of macrophages or microglia. And also we talked a little bit about T cells, about pro-inflammatory, anti-inflammatory, about methylation patterns regulated by lipid metabolism or by transcriptional factor, um, cargo relief of lipid factors within the nucleus or the mobilization of acetyl-CoA 
or acidenosyl methionine into the nucleus because of the alteration of metabolism linked to lipoprotein docking. Remember way back then, lectures like in the 60s or uh, 70s or 50s or 60s, we were doing this whole sequence of amino epigenetics. All of that relates to gene expression. And what I'm doing is saying all of that gene expression, all of the lipid raft mobility, all of the alteration of proteins on the surface of the membrane or internalized in the membrane because they're alpha helices or into the cytosolic face of the inner leaflet of the plasma membrane. Likewise, all the other endomembranous components and then and the uh, contribution of the nuclear genome and the mitochondrial genome and the alteration of metabolism, carbohydrates to lipid metabolism or amino acid utilization. Every single component of biochemical interaction that we've talked about the last, you know, well, which basically whenever I talk about biochemistry, are still working under the assumptive rule of thermodynamics. So understanding London dispersion forces, understanding polarizability, understanding the effect of a mass of an atom is critical to get to the level of interpreting biochemical information. The reason it's important is because a person can get so far away into the biology of a disease that the measurement and what is being examined under that me measurement must have a logical precursor in following basic laws of thermodynamics. And that's why we're going to continue this. It's Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Podcast, 7 June. Bye for now.